welcome to the Healthy Doctor Podcast, where we host conversations about physician well-being. I'm Dr. Steve Sartori, Director of the Center for Well-Being at the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Burnout among healthcare professionals can lead to unhealthy coping behaviors such as alcohol abuse. My guest on this episode is Dr. John Umhau, a noted specialist in alcohol use disorder. Dr. Umhau provided primary care to homeless men and women in the Washington, D.C. area for more than 20 years and was one of the founders of the Christian Community Health Fellowship. He received his medical degree from Wake Forest University, completed a residency in clinical preventive medicine at Johns Hopkins University, and is also a certified physician executive. Dr. Umhau served 20 years as a senior clinical investigator on alcohol abuse and alcoholism at the National Institutes of Health and has authored numerous scientific papers on alcoholism, violence, and nutritional neuroscience, research efforts which were concurrent with an active medical practice. He recently retired as a commander in the United States Public Health Service and currently treats alcohol use disorder through his private telemedicine practice. Let's see what we learn by talking with Dr. Umhau. Well, John, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Healthy Doctor Podcast. Thanks so much, Steve. I'm delighted to be here. We talked a little bit, and you seem to have a great deal of expertise in the area of uh, of the use of alcohol. And I, you know, we're going to get into some of the terminology around that. But first of all, could you just uh, help us understand how you got interested in this field of expertise you're in just now? Well, sure. So I did a, a clinical preventive medicine residency at Johns Hopkins. And one of the things that they wanted us to learn about that's very preventable is substance abuse. So I ended up going to a different Alcoholics Anonymous meeting every week for the whole um, six or eight weeks that I was doing addiction work. And I got really interested in it. I was really in, intrigued by the fact that if you got somebody sober who was a young man, you could completely change their life. And that really appealed to me from a sort of a utilitarian point of view, and it was kind of fun to be able to work with a otherwise healthy population. But the other thing was all the guys in the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and the women there, they had a quality about them that was really kind of special because they'd overcome a lot to be in those Alcoholics Anonymous meetings for oftentimes years and years and years, and they were trying to work their 12 steps and the Christian perspective that they had was really a nifty way to think about treating patients, and I really gravitated to that. So I ended up doing a lot of different things with my medical training. I worked in healthcare for the homeless projects in different inner cities, and I realized there was really not much that you could offer someone with serious alcoholism. And I was particularly interested in violent alcoholics because it seemed very clear that they had something wrong with them in their brains. But there was really not a whole lot of research that had been done on this. And I ended up talking to another friend of mine, Dr. Ted George, who was a member of the CMDA. And he um, got me to work with him over at the um, National Institute on Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, where I stayed for about 20 years working in alcohol research and developing medications for alcoholism. And I was particularly interested in nutrition because nutrition seemed to be a really important part of people's 
behavior. It just seemed really a way to address a bigger public health problem than just developing uh, medications. And so I got interested in medications as uh, part of my work at NIH, but also in what we call nutritional neuroscience and how, how the diet affects the way we think. One question that comes to my mind is, uh, you know, how does, how does this alcohol problem get started or what do you see? Are there any kind of normal things that you sort of anticipate when people kind of end up going down that path of abusing or misusing alcohol? Well, alcoholism, or we call it now alcohol use disorder because it sort of encompasses lots more. This disorder really is very complicated. It's um, clearly an addiction. It's clearly got genetic components to it. It's clearly got dietary and social components. It's it's not an easy thing to really wrap your head around. But sort of the way I understand it is that you have people that have a genetic predisposition for it. So there's, for instance, you give someone a, a heavy drink of alcohol when they're a teenager, and, and you can tell by how much they're affected by the alcohol whether they're likely to be an alcoholic 20 years from that date. Uh, you can also find that people who eat really healthy food, particularly lots of omega-3 fatty acids like you get in fish, probably are going to be protected from some of the adverse effects of alcohol and probably other drug abuse too. And of course, you know that people that go through psychiatric traumas, psychological traumas, PTSD, that you get in warfare or troubled childhoods or broken marriages and people that are really sad. Alcohol is a wonderful medicine for that. So people drink for those reasons too. And alcohol is a medicine. Medicine that's been used for millennia when you're suffering. Alcohol acts sort of an anti-inflammatory and reduces the inflammation. You kind of feel better. So for whatever reason, you might drink a lot. Maybe it's just your friend's drink. At some point, your body recognizes that alcohol is a way to reduce pain by releasing endorphins and those natural opiates in your brain have a powerful effect and you got to learn to go for that endorphin rush mm-hmm. and once you've once your brain sort of knows that by drinking you get the endorphin rush you're kind of addicted and it's hard to overcome the craving and then that's another whole level of of wanting to drink is not only do you maybe enjoy the the medicinal effects of the alcohol, but now that you're addicted and you're craving the stuff. Of course, in our burnout and well-being literature, we know that this is one of the ways that people try to uh, medicate themselves and take care of themselves when they're not feeling well and burned out or not having a good time professionally or whatever. So it's an adverse way of coping. Uh, how, how common is this problem, John? Well, they think that alcoholism affects probably 10% of the population, and that's irregardless of who they are, what socioeconomic status, or or where they are in life. It's 10% straight across the board. Of course, it may be different in different parts of the, of the world, but that's about what we have here in America. Uh, so does that mean that perhaps I ought to think that 10% of doctors ultimately could be prone toward alcohol use disorder? 10% of lawyers, 10% of mm. airline pilots. Yeah. So. Well, that's that's pretty prevalent. That needs a lot of attention, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So when it hits, and it's going to hit someone, uh, all of us uh, have more than 10 people in our environment, and over the course of our lifetimes, we're going to encounter people who have this problem. And it, so if I'm a friend or a 
family member? What do, what do I look for? What can I do? What if it's myself? I mean, what, what does someone do when they have someone close to them or recognize themselves that they have a problem? So the first thing about alcoholism is is that um, you could uh, pretty much avoid it if you're really careful. And, and I, what I mean by careful is that you drink as part of a meal. You don't drink on an empty stomach so that you're knowingly going after the buzz. You don't drink to medicate yourself. You use medications for that, or you you have a a, a set of friends that's not that don't focus about around drinking. You develop lots of fun things in your environment, fun things in your life, good relationships that are frankly more satisfying than than the alcohol. So those prevent you from from developing a problem with alcohol. Once you've got the addiction, it can be really hard to break through the craving. People in Alcoholics Anonymous can do that, and that's been probably the strongest evidence of these groups that can help people. We also have Celebrate Recovery and other Christian groups, too, that do a very good job helping uh, people sort of think about alcohol in a different way by helping each other to, to stay on the right path. I will say that that the diet is probably important. If you eat really well, avoiding high fructose corn syrup and some of the junk foods and eating high-quality diet that's going to give you a good microbiome, and as I mentioned before, omega-3 fatty acids from eating a lot of fish is really helpful too. But then again, there's medications. Now, what's really quite remarkable is the effect of uh, naltrexone and, and uh, caprosate and even a lot of the um, off-label drugs in their effect to reduce craving for alcohol. They just really help people sometimes. And it's quite remarkable. And that's what's been really fun about my practice is to be able to tell people about these medications and help them with it. So we have a lot of resources to help, it sounds like. Obviously, with most of the practice of medicine, prevention is better and easier than cure, and we strive for that, and using good, what I saw, say, alcohol hygiene or whatever you want to call it, you know, eating it with a, drinking it with a meal, making sure to eat well, taking care of yourself, and not getting yourself into those positions where you get to the point of addiction, where it becomes much more difficult to deal with. But even then, you said there's Alcoholics Anonymous, there's Celebrate Recovery, there's other medications, there's still hope for recovery even at that point. And what level of hope is there uh, once you get down the road? I'm really completely amazed about this new, I say new, but this way that I've started using, uh, for instance, naltrexone, sort of in a targeted way. An animal researcher named uh, Sinclair, Dr. Sinclair, was a uh, a fellow who did uh, work with animals, and he found that if you gave them naltrexone and then gave them the alcohol following that, that eventually that pairing of the alcohol with the naltrexone would reduce their consumption to the point where they didn't drink anymore. So these would be alcoholic animals to start with, and you, then you start giving them naltrexone right before they drank, and they would no longer drink alcohol. So we use that today. We call it the Sinclair method, and there's been a resurgence of interest in that uh, on the internet. People um, have talked about how they've overcome the craving for alcohol by just taking the naltrexone pill an hour before they drink. It's one of the most remarkable things I've ever I've ever seen when you have people tell you, doctor, thank you, That's a, I'm pretty certain you're saving my life. This is a miracle drug. It's an amazing drug. And uh, one guy talked to me last month. He said, doc, if I'd known about the medications for alcoholism, 
I probably wouldn't be divorced now. Mm-hmm. And it's just really important for, for us all to realize that once you start craving alcohol, if you don't have the willpower to stop, there are medicines to kind of help overcome the craving because the craving is a real thing. And then like uh, other kinds of addictions, if we can manage that craving, then we can give some space to sort of restructure life in a healthy way that allows us to move ahead in a very positive direction. That's exactly right. So you can overcome the craving, but if you're still in an environment where everybody's drinking, where you're, if you're really sad and you don't have any friends, you're going to turn back to alcohol because you're familiar with the uh, pleasure that it does give. Yeah. You know, part of what is healthy, it seems, for many people with disease or alcohol or substance use is, for some, we know that religious faith or spirituality is a very positive force in either recovery or prevention. What do you see as the role of religious faith or spirituality in the patients you deal with? Well, I think it's really critical. The people that seem to do best in the uh, Sinclair method or using any kind of treatment, actually, are the people that have already had a little bit of uh, involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous because they recognize that this is a lifelong problem that's a serious problem, and they've been humble enough to recognize that they need to take it seriously. And the Alcoholics Anonymous program, as you all may know, is related to a um, Christian group called the Oxford group movement back uh, 100 years ago. And these folks in the Oxford group were basically espousing Christian principles when they um, came up with their rules for life, which then were adapted by the early members of Alcoholics Anonymous to become the 12 steps. So it's the Christians have been very formative in the Alcoholics Anonymous program. And um, it's gradually, as everything's become secular in the last few decades, it's become less and less Christian. But that's definitely the roots that it has. You mentioned that word humility, uh, which I thought it was important, a critical ingredient to admit uh, where you're at and that you need help. It's oftentimes the first step of entry. And, you know, if I'm around someone who has an alcohol problem, are there ways to raise awareness in someone else that... uh, might get them to the point of humility. What what, what would you do, be doing? What what would I do as a family member? Well, that's a that's a really good point. I think probably to give someone the freedom to recognize that what they've got is a disease or some kind of disorder in their brain. It's not their fault. One of the tenets of Alcoholics Anonymous that seems sort of weird is that they accept that alcoholism is a disease. What that does, in effect, is it takes away the, the onus, the guilt that people have because they're craving alcohol. Once you crave alcohol, that's inherent in your brain. You can't stop that. My first patient who I treated for alcohol with the, the Sinclair method, her chief complaint was that she didn't want to think about alcohol anymore. She just didn't want to think about it anymore. She wasn't drinking a whole lot, but she just didn't want to think about it anymore. And I think that once people take naltrexone and it takes away their craving for alcohol, it really does a number on their attitude because before that time, they felt really, really guilty that they craved alcohol. I give them a pill and it takes that craving away and they recognize, wait a minute, I'm not a bad person inherently. I may have made some bad choices, but 
this is something that I can deal with in a different way and think about it in a different way. And they can go for help and they can offer help to other people. And all these things that help people get a broader view of alcoholism that they're suffering from will help them the long-term recovery. Yeah, I can imagine the, the guilt and the shame that oftentimes accrues to people who have been challenged by this and to understand that uh, they're not alone and uh, it's not their fault and that the reality is there's love and acceptance for them and when they get put into an environment of love, acceptance, and non-judgmentalism that they have an opportunity to flourish. It's really true. The um, people are designed for fellowship with others and that's what gives us the most pleasure in life and it also can be an extremely powerful reason for people to stop using drugs and alcohol so there's a story about dr alexander i believe his name was who came up with the research that we call rat park and so he had trained rats to press levers to get opiates and the rats would be pressing their levers like crazy to get the opiates and then he put them in a great big uh, rat cage with lots of other rats and lots of other rat toys and even though the rats could still lever press for opium they just quit doing that they just played with all the other rats and they didn't need to, to press for the opiates anymore the same thing kind of worked when we had all the soldiers in Vietnam that were addicted to heroin. So a huge percentage of the service members in that conflict were addicted to heroin, and there was a concern that we'd have this huge epidemic of heroin abuse, heroin use when they came back. But what happened as soon as they came back and there were nice things going on, they just quit using heroin. Most of them did. So it's it's a very clear that the social environment and the pleasures we get from other people can um, replace the pleasures from drinking. And that's one of the reasons why Alcoholics Anonymous and Cellular Recovery is so successful is because they replace the, the drinking with true fellowship. And that's what Christians should be about mm. all the time, no matter what. Yes. Boy, I couldn't have said it better than that. That sense of fellowship and community, that that feeds our soul and makes us less desiring of other substitutes that are counterfeit and don't satisfy very deeply at all. In fact, they can deter from our satisfaction. That's so, so true. Well, John, in the couple of minutes we have remaining, I, I'd just like to, if you could briefly sort of uh, tell us what you're doing because, uh, you know, when I listen to you talk about working in telemedicine in this particular field, we know a bit about telemedicine, but can you share with us, if you would, uh, a bit about how that works? Sure. So I sort of stumbled into this practice after a period of really prayer and fasting, trying to figure out what the Lord wanted me to do. And this telemedicine way of helping people is very well suited to treating people with early alcoholism with medications, because the, the physical exam is not really necessary part of that. I can see people on the computer screen, and we can have conversations, and I can find out where they are, and if they want medications, I can prescribe them really easily. And the people that respond to their medical visits for alcoholism are the ones who have a doctor that really cares about them. So really, the, one of the critical things for treating people with alcohol use disorder is that their doctor cares about them, and that empathy is very important. And as we get beyond the age when we're going to be doing that really, really active practice and have to keep on top of hospital rounds and all that, it's kind of nice to be able to practice medicine in a situation where you don't have to put out knowledge about so many different areas, but you can use the the compassion that we've 
developed as physicians over decades of taking care of patients. Because that compassion combined with the use of naltrexone and other medications to help alcohol sufferers, it's a really powerful combination. And so as I started doing this telemedicine practice, I realized it's a huge opportunity to help people, to be able to minister to some of the neediest people in the country, and yet people that are completely available to telemedicine because they don't want to go see their regular family doctor because they're ashamed. Uh, they don't want anybody to know that they're drinkers. A lot of times the people that I see haven't told their spouse that they're drinking, but they see me on the telex. I can prescribe medications. They'll lose their craving in over four, five, six, seven, eight months. They'll stop drinking and they they're so grateful and it's so easy to do. So if any of your physician colleagues are interested in um, helping me do this, it's a huge, huge ministry opportunity. And I'm looking for partners one day to, to be able to take advantage of of this new technology, the new medications, and, and the telemedicine itself. I'm even thinking about starting ministries that, that uh, work overseas because it's a perfect opportunity for, for people um, uh, in other countries to help people here in America or people in America to help people in other countries. This telemedicine is really kind of a, a nifty way to stay engaged in medicine when you don't have the ability to go into the hospital every day, for instance. Mm. So if someone uh, by chance wants to connect with you about that, how would they do so? So I have a website called alcoholrecoverymedicine.com, and um, there's a way to find me there. I'm uh, very keen to talk to other folks about how to help alcoholics with this um, method, and um, I think that in the future we'll hear more and more about it. Well, that sounds great. Uh, John, thanks a bunch for sharing uh, even just a brief window into your life and uh, into some information that I think will be very helpful for our listeners. Thank you so much. You're welcome, Steve. Besides eating more fish, what are our takeaways from that conversation? As I listened, I heard some of the cornerstones of Christian healthcare medical practice, compassion, empathy, a sense of community and religion and spirituality that are so important to us as healthcare professionals and to our patients. I'm not sure what your takeaway is, but I encourage you and urge you to think about what John shared and see what it might mean to you personally. And if you want more information, remember to visit the website Alcohol Recovery Medicine, all one string, alcoholrecoverymedicine.com. At the CMDA Center for Wellbeing, we help healthcare professionals align with God, optimize well-being, and maximize influence. We offer professional coaching services that help you manage burnout, navigate change or transition, or grow your leadership skills. We also host coach training events that teach you how to help others without giving advice. For more information, visit cmda.org slash well-being. Before closing, I'd like to give a shout-out to our producer, Rusty, and some of his team. Thank you, Rusty, for all you do to make the Healthy Doctor podcast a monthly reality. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Healthy Doctor. Tune in again next month, and until then, care for yourself as you care for others.
This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.